Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. So Christmas, now in the rearview mirror, the new year looming up ahead, and here at Hell and High Water, we continue with our year-end tradition of retrospective, thumb-sucking, head-scratching, and beard stroking. Some of us have beards, some of us don't, but those who do are stroking their beards furiously while we make these episodes. Uh, last week, we covered the year in politics with David Axelrod. If you haven't listened to that, you got to go do it now. This week, we turn our attentions to a different kind of retrospective, a retrospective not about politics per se, but instead about sports. Not really even about sports per se, but more about sports as it lives at the intersection of politics and culture and society. And for that, we have two of the most esteemed, intelligent, amusing, and just overall fantastic sports writers, talkers, commentators, analysts, theorists. I don't even know how to begin to explain the big brains that these guys have when it comes to talking about the intersection of sports, which they both adore, and politics, culture, society. These two guys, two of my favorite people to read or listen to when they talk about sports, and also now the makers of a fabulous new podcast from The Recap called The Long Game. The first of them, the one and only, Elsie Granderson. The state of sports was very strong. In fact, it was the only thing we could count on. We couldn't even count on movie openings doing what they were supposed to be doing. But sports, sports was strong. And Elsie's partner, the Ed McMahon, the Elsie's Johnny Carson, a guy I have worked with for a long time. And for some reason, I just can't get rid of him. He's like a bad penny stuck to my shoe. Well, he's also, you know, a genius in a million ways. But let's just listen to him talk for a second here, real quick. The one and only Will Leach. The state of sports in our nation in 2021 was assuming the pandemic was over a long time ago and moving forward accordingly. COVID has caught back up with sports, but generally speaking, no matter what the rest of the country was doing, sports was constantly happening no matter what was going on with the pandemic. So I mentioned that Elsie Granderson and Will Leach are the co-hosts of a new podcast from The Recount called The Long Game. You got to go listen to that if you care at all about sports and, and not just about sports, but about how sports kind of intersects with and often shakes and rattles and rolls the rest of our lives in the realms of culture and society and politics and economics and business and technology. Like uh, sports is everywhere. You probably know Elsie from his many years at ESPN where he wrote for ESPN, the magazine was on ESPN, the network all the time, had a, a 17 year career, a long career at ESPN. Before that, he was mostly a writer. And from there, he's gone on to do all kinds of stuff. In addition to becoming, you know, a member of the LGBTQ Sports Hall of Fame, he's the host of ABC's first ever LGBTQ focused podcast. This podcast is called Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson. He's also an op-ed columnist at the LA Times now. He's a political contributor at ABC News. You know, you see him on This Week with George Stephanopoulos as often as you see him somewhere talking about sports, but he continues to be a person who made his bones as a sports writer and sports commentator. Um, look, Will Leach, what can I say? I sometimes give Will shit, and it may happen occasionally on this podcast, but Will is one of my favorite people in the whole world of journalism and uh, a guy I ran across when we worked together at New York Magazine, where he wrote about sports at Bloomberg. We made a podcast together called The Culture Caucus that's lost into the mists of time, I'm certain. Um, look, he's also the guy who founded Deadspin. So anybody who cares about sports journalism knows about Will Leach and, and his history founding Deadspin. It's a, you know, it was a seminal and transformative thing that he did. 
you know, you see Will's stuff in the New York Times and the Washington Post, like all over the place. He's also on camera at MLB.com. He's done television all over the place. And he's the author of How Lucky. We did a podcast episode on it in the middle of 2021. That book called How Lucky is a fantastic book. Will's crazily talented and crazily great. And we got him together with LZ to make this podcast called The Long Game. Um, here's the thing. We got together to have this conversation. And I said, guys, you guys should tell us what you think the most important stories in sports were in the year 2021 as they intersection with politics and culture and society. And these guys came up with great answers. But instead of covering like the full waterfront with these guys, we ended up going deep on a couple of really huge and important topics. And I think going deep was better than going broad in this case, because these guys are both so smart. So without further ado, Elsie Granderson and Will Leach talking about the year 2021 in sports, culture, politics, society, the whole nine yards on a couple of the big giant stories that transformed both sports and our world here on the last episode of the year, the last episode of the year of Hell and High Water. Let's go, Brandon. The phenomenon that began, of course, when during a NASCAR race, the crowd was shouting, <laughs> fuck Joe Biden. Let's have a look at what happened, see if we can understand this phenomenon. And let's face it, it's yet another example of media bias and deception, albeit one that has been embraced and turned into a powerful meme. And now a hip hop number one. Thank you to all of our partners. Oh my God, it's just such an unbelievable moment. Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the, the crowd, let's go, Brandon. I never heard the words fuck Joe Biden more clearly than as it's being chanted by that NASCAR crowd right there. And we're here with two of the rising stars in the recount stable of stars. There's the recount constellation. You, know, you look up in the sky and you see the sparkling stars. There's so many in the recount world, but there are no two stars more celestial, more stratospheric, more supernova-ish than the hosts of the long game, LZ Granderson. I was going to say the great LZ Granderson and Willage. And the other guy. All right, guys, let's go, Brandon. Here's my question. Of all the people who have ever been president of the United States, I never really thought you could really hate Joe Biden as much as apparently some people do. And the fact that this thing that Russell Brand's talking about became, you know, an event in a NASCAR thing that then spread around the country. You can see college football games, pro football games, blue states, red states, college sports, concerts, like anywhere in culture, someone's chanting, let's go, Brandon. And that's become obviously a thing. And I'm curious what you guys think about, A, the degree of antipathy it displays towards Biden. There are a lot of people who hated Barack Obama. You never saw that in the eight years of Obama and how it transmuted from the sports world directly into politics, not in some weird orthogonal way, but it's like on the floor of the house. You know, people have embraced this thing. What do we make of that? I would say that the let's go Brandon chant is not really about Joe Biden. It's another way of saying let's go Trump. You know, to your point, we normally don't see this level of hate where people are chanting such things. And I do remember reading, I believe it was President Hoover who was hit with tomatoes as he left the White House because of his way of, that he handled the beginning days of the Great Depression. And Americans weren't happy with him and they threw tomatoes and blah, blah, blah. This is not it. What I think we're witnessing now is just different ways that people are expressing support for President Trump. And it just so happens that Joe Biden is the president right now. 
but it really could have been any Democrat. It would have been the same sort of chant, the same sort of response. With all that being said, there is no real rationale why sports and politics have been so connected to this presidency other than the fact that the rise of player empowerment expedited this sort of connectivity. You know, the fact that you had black players in particular across different leagues demanding more accountability from this country and how that coincided with the 1619 project, which coincided with the conversation about critical race theory, which coincided with Black Lives Matter. Um, all of those things sort of created like this perfect storm that sort of made politics and sports appear as if it's one. But that's, again, nothing to do with neither Trump nor Biden, but really just sort of like this coincidence of time. Will, I just want to say this. I don't credit the right for very much, but given how crude and dumb most of the memes that come out of the right wing are, the idea that they found a way to both critique the media. And do I believe that the NASCAR reporter was actually engaged in some liberal conspiracy? I do not. But there is this view on the right that, you know, liberal media is constantly covering up how much America hates Joe Biden. So they found a way to critique the liberal media, what they see as the liberal media, and say, fuck Joe Biden without saying, fuck Joe Biden. I mean, frankly, that's what the left said about Trump. They said, fuck Donald Trump. For the right, by their standards, which I will stipulate are low, it's relatively clever. It's a relatively clever meme by the standards of, of what conservatives normally do. Yeah. And it fits into the two things that are kind of driving them the most right now, which is basically trolling. <laughs> like it's just basically a troll in a lot of ways. Own the libs. Yeah. And it's also almost like a secret password to a club, right? right. It's like a joke that they're all just sort of in on. I think that's how it started. And I think that's why I, th I, I agree that it's a media critique. But what it really is, is like I was at the game five of the World Series mm -hmm. with the Braves and they showed on the screen uh, a bunch of Braves fans in between the innings. And there was a guy who literally had a Brandon Braves jersey. He put Brandon on the back. And of course, as soon as the camera gets on him, his buddy that has Let's Go put on the back of his Braves jersey stands next to him. Those things are expensive. <laughs> like those things are not cheap to actually get like a full <laughs> official Braves jersey where you put that on there costs money to do. So like it is, yes, fuck Joe Biden. But what it really is, is it's a club. Like it's a club and it's a secret password to the club and it owns the libs. Put all those things together it's kind of what the Republican Party is in a lot of ways and certainly what Trump has kind of led them to. It doesn't stand for anything. It doesn't mean anything other than it pisses people off and it lets you know that you're in and they're not. And I think it really is kind of the perfect thing for that because it is clever, I suppose, in the way that you can say fuck Joe Biden without saying Joe Biden. But what it really is, is a self-referentially, just so you know, we're really clever and you're with me and this is a way to do it. Totally agree. So look, I mean, you guys both, when I asked you guys to look back on 2021, obviously the thing to talk about, a, a big thing to talk about, and then there's a subtopic related to it, is the, the situation of like how COVID and the pandemic, which obviously is an issue that doesn't just hit sports, but hit everything, how it kind of played out over the course of the last year. We all went through the pain of 2020 and, you know, basically having all of our sports lives disrupted in this pretty profound way. If you're a fan who likes to go to games, as I know all three of us are, you know, the schedules were curtailed, all kinds of stuff happened at the pro level and the collegiate level. 2021, you know, there was a determination to try to basically bring things back to normal. And that sort of existed for a lot of the year. You know, I'm thinking about the World Series. Well, you know, you mentioned the Braves. You know, you looked at those stadiums. They were full. People were out there doing their thing. And that's obviously been true of the football season up till now where, you know, I see the Bulls, first NBA team 
just this week, we're recording this here in the middle of December. They just had the first games postponed this season due to 10 players landed in the COVID protocols. You've got, you know, football, the NFL is COVID cases are rapidly on the rise. We talked earlier about what's going on. I mean, it's really fast. This Omicron thing has really got people worked up. Not wrongly, right? The spread is really fast. We don't know very much about how bad it's going to be. But I guess I ask you guys to just kind of reflect on the way that sports came back in 2021 from the pandemic and what people are thinking about now and how they're going to deal with it if COVID's back in a major way, you know, with these sports being affected right now. I was going to go see the Nets and the Bucks on January 7th over in Brooklyn, where Will and I have seen a fair number of games together. And I'm now like, is that game going to happen? Reflect on the comeback from 2020 and the tenuousness of it as we sit here at the very end of 2021. The thing that I think is key to remembering about how sports have handled the pandemic, sports happen. And like there, there's an old joke in newsrooms where on election night, the news staff is always like, oh, everyone get a pizza. It's going to be a late night. There's all this stuff happening tonight. And all the sports reporters are like, yeah, we do this shit every night. We literally do this every night. Sports happen. And a few things came back quicker, right? The bubble was being constructed in April or May. I think that we will talk about the bubble for years from now as this incredible achievement and in infrastructure and how they were able to, to pull that off. But like there was this understanding sports has to happen. Sports has to get back just even within the sports themselves, maybe the culture didn't feel that way, but certainly within sports, there was this need to get back going. With 2021, I think the fact that the NFL made it through a season last year, and it was hard before vaccines, the NFL, you know, a sport where like a bunch of people ram their faces into each other <laughs> and breathe on each other for hours on end and try to ram each other into the ground. And there was no bubble. They actually just went and played at opposing stadiums and there were fans at some of those stadiums. I think uh, teams were allowed to come back quicker than maybe the protocols would have let them because the NFL wanted to finish their season. But once they did that, like, wow, the NFL finished a season with fans in the stands without vaccines and not in a bubble, they're not going to let anything shut them down now. I wouldn't worry about that game on January 7th, to be entirely honest. You know, there was, was an anonymous executive for the Chicago Bulls that's interviewed recently, and he was talking about, he's like, listen, yeah, sure, we have lost these games, but like our team is entirely vaccinated. Our staff is entirely vaccinated. The league is at 98, 99%. I think Kyrie Irving is like a high profile person, but like if the rest of us could walk around the world with a percent of people around us vaccinated that NBA players do, we'd be feeling great. <laughs> we'd feel great to be able to have that. So we'll see what happens with Omicron. But at a certain level, if players are fine and they are, they're 22, 23 years old, they're fully vaccinated, they're fully healthy, they're in great physical condition. I think it's a matter of time. As this thing becomes endemic, I think sports will be one of the first places to say, you know what? If you're not showing any symptoms, they'll be the first place to treat it like the cold. I, I really think sports will be the first place that will treat this as endemic before other organizations were because their labor force will be eager to go out. I would not be surprised by the end of this year, at the end of 2022, someone has tested positive, whatever that means in 2022, and is playing. I think they will plow through it because they're highly vaccinated, they're healthy, and we're all going to have to make that adjustment this year at some point in 2022. Okay, so what does it mean to have this endemic? And I think sports will be one of the first places to wrestle with This that. is the reason why I said the state of sports is strong, because it did not bow down to COVID, if you will, for better or for worse. And the industry was not chastised for it. In fact, it was encouraged. You know, we talked about the World Series crowds. But what about all the other crowds? Golf, tennis, the U.S. Open, the championship for the U.S. Open was full. So when you think about all the other activities that were shut down in March of 2020 and what has returned, the strongest, the fastest, 
and the most resilient has been sports. Now, I'm not going to sit up here and say that the way that sports has handled the pandemic and the quarantine period and vaccination has been flawless, not suggesting that at all. But certainly if you're looking at the movie industry, for instance, yeah, totally. they're still struggling to get people to come back to watch films, Yep, even the huge blockbusters. Concerts are still struggling. Theater is slowly coming back. I saw a tour in production of Hamilton. It was maybe three quarters full. Everyone's wearing masks. People are still hesitant. But when I go to see the Braves or when I go see the Suns or if I go to a Lakers game, there is no hesitation, people. People are back. People are there. Yeah. <laughs> and they're fired up and ready to go. So I made the joke on a couple episodes ago about sports on our podcast, about how sports basically represented its importance to civilization during this time period. And I stand by that. That was the first thing that we made sure we got back. That is the thing that we hold on to the most. And I would dare say, come 2022, and I know we're all political leaning on this podcast, but we're not looking forward to the midterm election in 2022. We're not looking forward to the next Marvel movie in 2022. But we are looking forward to who's going to be in the Super Bowl. Can LeBron get another championship? The World Cup. The labor talks right. with Major League Baseball. Yeah. We're going to be talking about college sports and the impact of students being able to earn their own money using their images. Those are the things we're more concerned about. It's not those other elements of life. Yeah, I agree with you guys about this. And, you know, look, I, I'm not like super COVID paranoid. I'm double vaxxed and I've got the booster and I had COVID briefly and mildly, thank God, back in late 2020. So a long time ago. And just, you know, in general, I'm, I, I guess I'm kind of like Will, you know, my risk tolerance is what it is. I, I follow the science and I listen to the scientists and play by the rules and abide by all the restrictions. I, I do all the stuff I'm supposed to do and I don't complain about it much. But I will say <laughs> to both of you guys, because you'll appreciate this. I recently went to my first two NBA games since the pandemic hit. Yep. I was out in LA over Thanksgiving, saw Maya LZ's beloved Lakers get beat by the fucking Sacramento Kings, which was embarrassing. And then I got, was at a game at Madison Square Garden where the Knicks got beat by the Bulls um, right after, right after Omicron hit. Right. Yep. And you know, I'm in both arenas. There are sold out crowds, you know, 19,000 people in each place. And They've all had their vaccine cards checked in theory, but still it's like 19,000 people with no hesitation, no masks, none in either one of those buildings, people hollering, shouting, packed in like sardines, and no one, no one seemed to care. No one seemed to care. Pre-Omicron, post-Omicron, no one seemed to care. Now, maybe that's changing and maybe it'll change more as we go forward, but I do think you guys are probably right that unless some variant comes along that poses a more of a mortal threat to people and who knows, you know, what's going to happen with Omicron, we got to, you know, don't want to leave any hostages to fortune, but you know, live sports are just too big a business and too important culturally and too important emotionally to so many people in the country that, you know, you can't imagine like local state federal governments trying to shut them down again, unless something changes dramatically. All right. It's uh, time for us to take a break. We have been talking about COVID's transformative and maybe transitory, hopefully, uh, its effects on sports. But now in the next part of the podcast, we get to talk about some transformative people in the history of sports journalism, the two guys that we have here, Elsie Granderson and William F. Leach, we will get to these two keyboard kingpins, these titans of televisual real talk, these USDA prime cut podcasting impresarios. <laughs> we'll get to them in just a second after we take a short break here on Hot Hot Water. And we're back for part two of Hell and High Water with Elsie Granderson, Will Leach, the host of The Long Game, 
a brilliant new podcast about sports and culture and society from The Recount. So go and sign up for the podcast and listen to it, subscribe to it multiple times, rate it, review it, tell everybody how much you love it because you're gonna, if you're not already listening. I wanna play to start here. I wanna play Elsie Granderson, man. One of the reasons I want to start with you is because people who listen to this podcast are already familiar with Will. You are the new fresh face in the Recount Stable and also someone who, unlike Will, kind of reached the pinnacle. You know, you got there. You, As you say, I'm going to play this sound. You talk about this. You got to the mountaintop and then you just said, nope, I'm out. So let's play a little Elsie Granderson talking about his decision to leave the ESPN fold. This is Elsie Granderson explaining that. And then we'll talk about that and the rest of Elsie's career in part two of this podcast on the other side of this sound. You know, ESPN, for a lot of us, particularly those who love sports, is like the epitome of what you strive for. It's like the mountaintop. And so as you're trying to climb through the ranks to get there, you envision what it would be like, you know, heaven, land of milk and honey, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And while that was obviously unrealistic, um, I didn't think it was unrealistic to once I've got there to feel like I was a valuable contributor to the content they were creating. But I was oftentimes facing um, the opposite. Um, the best thing I could hope for, for for most of my time was being tolerated. That's a hard thing to come to understand, right? I mean, how many years were you total at ESPN? Uh, 17. That's a long time, right? It's a long time, yeah. You grew up in Michigan, right? Born in Detroit? Yep. And pretty much dreamed about doing sports journalism from the beginning, right? I mean, you're doing more than just sports journalism now, but you had a bit, <laughs> this was an aspiration of yours for a long time. If you would, if I'd asked you as a kid, you would have said, I want to do sports journalism and, and I'll reach the mountaintop and you got there. I wanted to be the Black Mitch album growing up. I, I read about that, LZ. I read <laughs> that you at some point used to dig around in trash cans yeah. Yeah, looking yeah. for copies yeah. of the Detroit Free Press so that you could read Mitch album you know, the Mitch Al famous Mitch album comps. Is that right? Yeah. That's what I read. I'm sure I read that it was true and I couldn't quite believe it. I would say, you know, the trash might be kind of where Mitch Album's writings belong. <laughs> I kid, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All you Mitch Album lovers, all you Tuesdays at Maury's people, like, I'm just don't come after me. I imagine I'm going to get canceled by the Tuesdays at Maury's crowd. <laughs> anyway, look, not my jam, but LZ, you apparently wanted to be the Black Mitch Album. It's not exactly how I think of you, Curly. <laughs> I assume you gave up on that, quote, dream, unquote, at some point. Um. Well, like that no longer was a pursuit after I, <laughs> you know, after I grew up a little bit and yeah. realized that Mitch had his voice, I had mine. It was important that I was the the black LZ and not the black Mitch album. <laughs> it's very nice the way you say that, that Mitch had his voice and you had yours. Um, you know, again, just, I mean, think about that trajectory, right? That takes you all the way to ESPN, you, you know, an interesting kind of twisty turny career. And then you got there. I want to unpack that a little bit more. The sound we played, you know, for a lot of sports journalists, ESPN is the land of milk and honey. And you said you were, most of the time you were just being tolerated. So I guess, you know, to the extent you'd like to or can just talk a little bit about what it was like to be not just black, but also black and gay in the world of sports journalism in the land of milk and honey that is ESPN. You know, I, I would start by saying that I do not regret spending 17 years at ESPN. You know, I don't, the things that I wish I could do differently are more about me than them. My response to certain things, my decisions about certain things, including to stay longer, it was more about me than the company. But when I got there, the magazine was located in Manhattan. The company itself 
was situated in small town USA in Connecticut. But the magazine where I first started was in Manhattan. And as you can imagine, the politics of an outlet in Manhattan would be different than the politics in a small town USA. So while I was brought in, assuming in good faith because of my years in journalism and my talent and my knowledge of the sports, particularly basketball, which I was brought in to help cover, as I started to make my way throughout the company, I realized that very, very quickly <laughs> that the politics in New York were not the politics company-wide. In fact, I always think it's hilarious that people think that media is liberal because I can tell you as a gay black man, that is far from the truth. Um, <laughs> with that being said, there were a lot of people in powerful places who did not understand why I was there outside of me being black and gay. Like I get to check boxes for them but they did not value what I brought to the table as a professional. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was the gay black guy that the magazine had hired in New York, as opposed to I was the guy the magazine hired who was doing sports in Atlanta. And before Atlanta, he was working in South Bend and he was there covering Notre Dame. And he was the guy who worked in newspapers in Michigan. Like I actually built myself up. <laughs> To get to ESPN, I didn't just come out the closet and the ESPN said, oh, okay, well then here, we'll give you a job. And if I may throw a little shade, hmm, please. they gave Will Kane a national show, a national radio and television show. Will Kane did not cover sports coming up. Will Kane did not go into the locker rooms. He did not have to talk to an athlete after they missed a game-winning shot or a tennis player after they missed a, a volley that cost him a match. He didn't have to deal with any of that. But he got a radio and a television show on a sports network because of his politics. Let's be real with it. And when you see that happening, and you have already have spent a number of years trying to justify your existence as a professional... But then when there's a flip in the White House and there's suddenly a need to look more conservative from the company and they just go grab any white guy with no solid history of covering sports and you have a solid history of covering sports and have been sitting there covering sports for this network, you get the picture pretty clear that you're tolerating. Right. And it's interesting, right? So you, you're born in 72 mm -hmm. and you went to Western Michigan University, eventually went to Grand Valley University and for graduate school. And throughout much of this time, I want to just like the timeline, right? You didn't come out of the closet until 98. Is that right? Yeah, it was like 97, 97 98. 98. Yeah. And as you then come out, you heard from people along the way that there was discomfort about the idea of sending a gay journalist into the locker room, right? That was a thing you heard as you were trying to get a foothold in the business, right? Yep. Yep. It wasn't discomfort. It was flat out homophobia, right. but yeah. <laughs> right. And, and did you, and, and you thought that they were saying there's homophobia in the locker room, so you can't do your job. What, what was your view when you would be told that? What was the kind of argument there and, and how you reacted to it? My reaction was primarily, I'm just going to have to keep trying. And that's just basically what I did. You have to remember the country at that time, the mid nineties, mid to late nineties was still very much afraid of the HIV AIDS epidemic, still has some very antiquated views in terms of LGBTQ plus people. Ellen DeGeneres was basically run off the television. There's been a number of actors who were outed and essentially lost their careers. I believe Barney Frank was the only representative and you know elected official at the time, any sort of high profile. So the country was very, very, very still anti-LGBTQ as I'm trying to break into sports. 
as an openly gay man. And so when you see what's happening in all the other industries around as it pertains to homophobia and transphobia, then you just know that what you encountered isn't unique to you and that it's up to you to decide how you're going to deal with it because this won't be the final time that you'll have to. Right. I knew what I knew about sports and I was comfortable with that and I was confident in that. And I just kept plucking away guys until, and this is the honest to God truth. I had been told multiple times that I would be better suited for the women's department at newspapers. And when I got to the Atlanta Journal Constitution, I was the interior design writer. What year was this? The AJC? Oh man, this was maybe 2002. Okay. Yeah, probably like 2002. I'm like the home design writer for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Oh man. Were you good at it? Well, despite my sexual orientation, Will, and the fabulous decor you may see behind you, I actually knew nothing about <laughs> fashion, about asking. home decor. I was going to say, looking at the background behind Elsie right now, I think the answer to that is no, Will. I no, think we can see that. I knew nothing yeah, about um, it. I was asking. But yeah. the assumption was, you know, you're gay, you'll figure it out. Right. And you know what? I'm gay. I figured it out. I figured out what I needed to do. The joke is that I'm gay. I figured it out because I'm a fucking journalist, and that's what journalists do. You go to a beat, whether you've covered it before or not, there are certain things that you do in every single new beat that you need to do in order to be good at that particular beat. And I just apply those same principles. But I brought that story up to share with you as I'm covering, you know, home decor and I'm doing some sports on the side. Shout out to you, Robin Footlick, for believing in me. We start a new entertainment tab and I am picked to be the lead writer for this new entertainment tab. And I said to them that sports is entertainment and that we should be covering sports in this tab. And so the features department, which was putting on this tab, agreed with me. And that is how I became a sports writer. I had to find a new path that I created myself because the sports editor at the AJC and the sports editor at every other newspaper I worked for would not bring me on as an openly gay guy. So you just have to keep going. Wow. So so it's interesting, right? So you go to ESPN mm-hmm. and people know about your sexual orientation and you start working at the magazine. You do other stuff along the way. You're like writing for CNN and you're and you're doing various things. But look, I mean, it's an, kind of an incredible statement about the the state of the country, at least that in that period from 1997, 1998, whenever you decided to come out. And by the time you get a, basically a decade later. It's 2011, and you're named Journalist of the Year by the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. A few years after that, you're inducted into the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association Hall of Fame, and you're given a TED Talk on LGBTQ equality called The Myth of the Gay Agenda. It's got 1.6 million views on the site right now. You've got a big-time job at the most dominant sports institution in sports media. And you're getting hosannas for for the work you're doing. And at least it's from the outside, it looks like a full embrace of your sexuality. I want to play this thing from the TED Talk, though, just to kind of point to how tricky all this was for you when you were younger and then ask you about what the reality was behind some of the perception where with all the, the apparent acceptance, whether it was as thorough and complete as it might have looked. When I was about 16 years old, I can remember flipping through channels at home during summer vacation, looking for a movie to watch on HBO. And how many of you remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Oh yeah, great movie, right? Well, I saw Matthew Broderick on the screen, and so I thought, sweet, Ferris Bueller, I'll watch this. It wasn't Ferris Bueller. He was in a movie called Torch Song Trilogy. And Torch Song Trilogy was based on a play about this drag queen who essentially was looking for love. 
love and respect. That's what the whole film was about. And as I'm watching it, I'm realizing that they're talking about me. Not the drag queen part. I'm not shaving my hair for anyone. But the gay part, the finding love and respect, the part about trying to find your place in the world. So I, I play that because you were, as I said a second ago, ostensibly at the very top of your profession, but you're still trying to find love and, and respect in, the, in your place in the world, right? And I, I guess I'm curious about that and how your personhood and your persona how that struggle kind of played out over the course of that next decade, not just ESPN, but more broadly, like the ways in which I guess you're still trying to find your way like we all are. But I'm curious about yours in particular, because sports has come a long way, but it's still not necessarily the most hospitable towards either people of color or people of non-heterosexual sexual orientation. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's, it's an essay. Um, it's, not a, it's not a true false question, <laughs> nor multiple choice. That's an, it's an essay question. I apologize. Yeah. I choose C. Um, here, I'll give you this example. The manager that brought me in for my initial interview and, and eventually, you know, was part of hiring me at ESPN said to me one day, I think we were talking about Yao Ming or something like that. And he says to me with no sense of irony whatsoever that, wow, you know so much about basketball, I forget that you're gay. And I'm sure in his mind that was a compliment. Yeah. But to me, it was far from it immediately forced me to ask myself, why would the person who brought you in to interview, interview you, hire you, and you work for, what did they think they were getting? In other words, why are you surprised by my NBA knowledge when you brought me in to do the NBA? There's only one logical conclusion, right? That I wasn't solely brought in to cover sports, I was brought in as some sort of statement, some sort of, uh, of, you know, declaration of some sort. And while I'm very proud to be black, and I'm very proud to be gay, and I'm very proud to be six foot two, and I'm proud that I have a Detroit Lions jersey in my closet right now, despite being 110 and one right now. I'm also really proud that I'm really fucking good at my job. <laughs> I love right? it. I love it. Do you it. know one time, are oh, you getting me all riled up? You know one time, <laughs> I was... I was playing pickup basketball. This, this is how fucked up this industry can be. I was playing pickup basketball one day. This was years ago. Do you guys remember Sean Respert, shooting guard for Michigan State University? Yeah, Michigan State. Michigan State. Sean Respert was on the basketball court playing pickup with us right before he got drafted. So he's just out there shooting hoops. And I go to him and I go, Sean, is it okay that I interview you? you know, and do a story about you before you go to the draft. He says, yeah, sure. Sean sits down with me after we get done playing ball for about 45 minutes. And I write this whole piece and I go to the sports editor and I didn't work in the sports department. This is true. But I go to the sports editor and I just say, hey, if I get it, and it this is in Michigan and Sean Resper played for Michigan State. So this is very, very relevant. I go to him and say, hey, if I get an interview with Sean Resper, would you be interested? He looked at me, snickers, yeah, sure. I said, great, because I've already done it, here it is. And he looks at me and he goes, well, do you know him? And I says, no. He said, how'd you get it? And I explained to him. This motherfucker said to me, oh, so you play basketball? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, so you play oh, basketball? And I looked and I was like, 
Yeah, I, I, I've played for some years. I, I've played ball. And he said, and you recognize Sean Respert. <laughs> so when you bring up, you know, tolerated yeah, versus, yeah. you know, you know, these are the conversations that I've been dealing with yeah. for years, for not just years, for two decades. Right. So, you know, you pick and choose your battles. I decided to be more vocal about social justice issues, not because I was irritated, but because I didn't want people after me to have to deal with the same bullshit, whether it's the racism or the homophobia or any of the phobias. But those two examples, man, those are just two. I have so many examples of people second guessing my ability to cover specifically sports, never politics, but always sports right. for no other reason than the fact that I'm openly gay. Yeah, it's I mean, crazy. I, say, I talk with LZ every single week. I yes. literally don't know someone that knows sports better than LZ. Right. Like, I love sports. And the weird thing about this industry, there's a whole bunch of people that write about sports that don't. Right. And it's really, really strange, yeah. you know. And like, I remember when I I was in college and I was covering the daily the Illinois football team, and I went up to the press box and I was in college. So I was like, wow, all these guys that cover sports, they're gonna. And it's all guys. They must be the happiest people in the world because they're covering sports. Yeah. They must be so happy, and they're all miserable, and yeah. they're all grousing about the food, and they're all <laughs> having a terrible time. It's so hard to find people who are knowledgeable about sports, but also truly love sports. And so, I mean, that's the, the most fun thing about doing the show with you, Elsie, is that like. Like you love sports the way that I love sports. And that's it's really, really hard to find people like that. I, I really appreciate that, Will, because I smoked the blunt after the Lakers won last night, listening to Tupac, thinking, hell yeah, we about to win another chip. <laughs> uh, yeah. Before I did that, I turned down Hawaii, the Maldives, where else did you want to say? Because I'm turning 50. And I said, what I really want to do for my 50th birthday is be at Indian Wells. Oh, and so I'm just going oh to Palm God. Springs oh. to watch tennis for my 50th birthday because I fucking love sports I and I that, love that, tennis. That's just also just so, sad, though, man. No, that's it's sad. great. It's that's awesome. That's what I'm saying. It's not. It's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's sad. totally that's, great. I was like, that's what am I going to do in Hawaii? I was like, nah, I would, I'd rather be at a sporting event. Take me either to see the Lakers or uh, Kindred uh, Spirit uh, in every possible When we finish recording the podcast, Elsie just sent me a note about all the things you could have done in Hawaii that would have been fun. Great, including smoking some incredible, incredible blunts there. <laughs> Here's the thing, though, as Will, you interjected yourself in the conversation. You guys do have this thing. You're both um, part of the reason why you're doing the long game together is that you're both massive sports fans, massively knowledgeable about it, talk about it incredibly well, and also have this ability to talk about sports in this broader context, which is the one that we care about in the context of the show. So back in the in the mid 1990s, when you guys were both still quite young, Will, how old are you now? Uh, I am 46. Right. So basically, Elsie's about turned 50. You're a few years. So you're a little bit younger than him. Back in the mid 1990s, this is the contrast in terms of achievement and culturedness that we have here on display. And Will, we'll talk about your background here briefly. But somehow, Elsie Granderson got himself in a movie, got into a movie with Sidney Poitier that, that's called To Serve With Love Too. Now, this is a sequel to a movie that came out in the 1960s. And I just want to hear just a taste of what it was like. Elsie Granderson, in addition to all the sports knowledge, all the brilliance, the political knowledge, the writerly abilities, all the stuff that he did. He also turns out to be someone who's a good enough actor that he could end up in a feature film. So let's play just this little clip to Sir With Love. This came out in 1996. Let's hear this. Guys are dogs. The minute they think there's going to be any kind of action, their brains drop down to their shorts and their hands are like an octopus. I've seen you Friday night with your see-through shirt. And your skirt's so tight, don't make no sense. If you want guys to chill out, what you doing getting them all heated up for? Yeah, 
LZ's mm. acting opposite Bernadette Speaks, and he's there. It sounded great in that. So what's Will Leach doing in 1996? Not that. Will Leach in 1996 <laughs> is hanging around Bush Stadium. There's some machine that lets you pretend like you're an announcer and call famous Cardinals moments. This is Will Leach like trying to basically, he's like, I want to be like Joe Buck. Here's this what it would sound like if you had me calling the famous <laughs> Ozzie Smith home run uh, in game five of the 1985 <laughs> National League Championship Series. Let's hear what Will Leach thought it sounded like to be a sports announcer in 1996 when he was just a pup. Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! Ozzie Smith has hit a home run, and the Cardinals win Game 5 of the 1985 National League Championship Series. Unbelievable! The crowd going nuts, and I don't believe it. The Cardinals have deflated the Dodgers on a home run by Ozzie Smith, betting left-handed. He just gets all of this one, gets it down his range and pops it out of there. I'm sorry, that's good. That's objectively great. You would have been 21 <laughs> at that age, right? Well, that, in that Correct. Yeah, right? Well, and, your voice is, and, and your voice is breaking. Uh, like you're still like having, yeah. apparently they haven't I still can't grow facial hair. Like I'm barely a mammal. I, I had to smoke for like 20 years after that to get that voice so, so just, <laughs> out of there. I finally got it. Just a year later, still, you know, 1997 now, Will manages to get himself somehow onto a TV show called Ben Stein's Money that's hosted by Jimmy Kimmel. Let's listen to Le Leach as he makes an appearance on Ben Stein's Money in 1997. This is also kind of incredible. Here it goes. Contestant number three is Will Leach, and uh, Will just got unengaged. He's a film critic and a uh, big Woody Allen fan. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm doing well, but I'm just really nervous about being here. I'm just, you're crazy. Okay. Uh, uh -huh. That is the worst Woody Allen attention <laughs> I've ever seen. Give me a break. Come on. I Name the performer who received a 1990 Best Supporting Actress nomination for her work in the movie Dances with Wolves. Mary McDonough? No. Alan. I mean, Will, sorry, Will, sorry. Mary McDonough. Yes, very good. All right. Kind of a cheap one, but we'll give it to you anyway. Will, yes. our next category is... There's a backstory to that. I, I'm not going to tell please. the backstory. Oh, I'd like to hear a little bit of it, please. Well, it was literally one of the first published pieces I ever had written was I got engaged my senior year of college mm -hmm. and moved to Los Angeles yes. where I worked as a film critic. Yep. And my girlfriend had stayed behind for a month and then she came out to visit me uh, in Los Angeles. And at nine o'clock at night, before the 6 a.m. taping, she ended our engagement. And so I was up all night and I had not slept. And so before the show, the producers came by and they said, hey, so we want to go over your biographical information. You're, you're single but engaged. You're a film critic and you're really into Woody Allen, which, by the way, that's aged well. Um, and, <laughs> but, uh, Fans. That's it's a nice touch. So basically, I, was, I hadn't slept and I was exhausted. And I said, you know, it's funny you should mention that. I actually just got unengaged like four hours ago and like, ah, don't worry about it. It's just biographical stuff. We don't even care. Clearly Jimmy Kimmel got the note and was like, oh, that's actually the second take. Because the first take they did it, I was like, uh, he asked me about my unengagement. And I was like, oh, and she was in the audience. It was awful. It was terrible. And so then they're like, let's redo that. And then he sprung the Woody Allen impression on me. I didn't claim that I did a Woody Allen impression, but I had to suddenly do that. And so at the time, I didn't know who Jimmy Kimmel was. He was just like a radio DJ in right. Los Angeles. This was like his first like big gig. And I remember thinking, okay, well, listen, 
I'm just glad. I don't ever want to think about that guy again. I don't ever want to know anything about that guy. Hopefully he'll just fade away into radio obscurity. Yes. And he did not do that. He absolutely did not. <laughs> and let's be clear. You were you were on the show. This is on Comedy Central. And it was, uh, this was what, your first television appearance ever? I had been in Los Angeles from the Midwest for like, honestly, like a month and a half. I didn't know anything. And it was hours after your fiance had dumped you, right? Correct. And she was in the audience. And, yes. and she was in the audience. And somehow, surprisingly, coming out of this formative experience, Will begins a weekly online column called Life is a Loser, which seems like maybe the best title. Kind of, I must have kind of derived a little bit out of this experience of having been dumped by your fiance and then being on. It was the first TV. column, right? Like, that was yes, literally the, the first yeah, column. The first yeah. column, right? Yeah. And that turns into also your first book, Life Is a Loser, a book I, well, the only of your books I haven't read. As I said, you've been on the podcast and we've talked about your prodigious background so many times before. I do want to say how lucky the book that Will wrote, which we brought him on Hell and Hot Water to promote because it is extraordinarily good. And if you're looking for a good stocking stuffer, I think it's out in paperback at this point, right, Will? You, uh, it's still hardcover, but it's very cheap uh, wherever you get it. It's a small- paper, Paperback comes out in May. It's a quick yes. read. It's a, quick it's read. a compelling book. And I, I give Will a lot of shit only because I love him as much as I do. And the book is fantastic. And it's true, Will, you're working on now a follow-up novel that you've written 60,000 words of. Is that right? Yeah, the How Lucky has been, knock on wood, they've been very- It's through HarperCollins. Yeah. And they were very, very happy with how it sold. So we we- Sold a two-book deal. Awesome. And so the next one is due. It will come out. The paperback of How Lucky comes out in May 22. And then the next book is called The Time Has Come. And it will be out May of 2023. Do any of the characters from How Lucky make an appearance in this new book? There are two minor characters. It takes place in Athens, just like How Lucky does. It takes place two years later. Actually, it takes place during the pandemic. And there are two minor characters in How Lucky that are more major characters in this. So it's, uh, you know, I didn't go to like creative writing school. I didn't go to Yado or McDowell or all the places that, that people go. Uh, yeah, surprisingly, they would not have let you in. So that's- They would have not let me. I, I would have been very upset they didn't have the extra innings package. I really <laughs> would have not been able to handle that, that they didn't have a league pass. Right. But yeah, so it's it's fun to be able to do. And it's uh, it's it's so much easier. Like, Elsie, you know this. It's like when you're writing like nonfiction and journalism, everything has to be right. And everything has to be true. Darn. And everything has to be factual. <laughs> it's so nice to be like, I'll just make my little people do whatever I want them to. It's kind of fun. Will's had, you know, this prodigious career. He's done so many things and written for so many people in so many places. And I make fun of him, like I said, only be, I kid because I love, you know, a guy, he's at New York Magazine. You can read him there. The books are many. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Medium, and NBC News, and MLB.com, and The Atlantic, and you know all that stuff. It's just like endless. He's just incredibly prodigious and incredibly prolific, and it's all very, 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 very good and very, very smart. And now he's doing the long game here with LZ uh, Granderson, and the podcast is, as I mentioned, the podcast is excellent and that you need to subscribe to it and, and rate it and review it in the best way. But it's still the case, as we end this part of Hell and High Water, it's still the case that there's nothing that Will has done that will ever surpass his founding of Deadspin. And because Deadspin was so important and so influential in changing the way that sports is covered in the online world, I always like to come back to the famous Will H. interview where he went on Bob Costas's show and appeared with Buzz Bissinger, the great Buzz Bissinger. And there's a long, anybody who wants to find this online can go and find it. The exchange between the two of them, Buzz, who hated blogs, hated online, was very traditional, a guy who wrote Friday Night Lights, and did not much like Will. There's a long discussion of which I've just taken the most important part, <laughs> the part that like gets to the heart of the matter, and then we'll take a break here on Hell and High Water. Let's just play this part, Buzz Bissinger really just down to the bone and Will's reaction to it. Let's play that. I think that blogs are dedicated to cruelty. They're dedicated to journalistic dishonesty. They're dedicated to speed. So I feel very strongly about this. I really think you're full of shit. Okay, well, that's, that's fair because enough. Will, do you have any further comments about that? Are you, will you still acknowledge that you are full of shit? 
Buzz and I have the same book editor now, so we are friends now. <laughs> we have to be uh, we have to be on the same page. But uh, I've actually never watched that video. I've never actually seen it. So uh, I, I found that a lot of journalism professors will show it to their students, which is a bad idea. We could go on and on and on and on about the decadent, depraved, debauched, desultory, personal, and journalistic history of Will Leach. <laughs> and look, I mean, if you're feeling like you want to hear even more about Will, who I do love with all my heart, you can always go and, and find our earlier episode of Hell and High Water from back in May when we talked about his fantastic novel, How Lucky, apparently going to be made into a major motion picture sometime soon. You know, we talk about it all in delightful, if sometimes mind-numbing, but delightfully mind-numbing detail. So honestly, go take a listen to that. But right now, uh, we're going to pay some bills, and when we come back, we will continue with our look back at the intersection of sports, culture, politics, and society in the year of our Lord, 2021. I want to get to Will and LZ's takes on the courageous and groundbreaking stances taken by Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles in defense of their own mental health, and we want to talk about also two of the most discussed biopics around sports figures this year and why, for me, one of them worked brilliantly, the other fell a little flat. We will get to all of it, every last drop. Get there with Elsie Granderson and Will Leach, the host of the new podcast from The Recount, The Long Game with Elsie and Leach. Go get it. And we are back for part three of Helen Hot Water's Look Back on the Year in Sports and where sports kind of intersected with the wider culture with the great Elsie Granderson and I don't know, the great Will Leach? I, I think more like Will Leach, the kind of the Andy Richter to LZ's Conan O'Brien. That's the Will Leach. That's how I think of Will. He's just, you know, he's a great sidekick. Uh, it has been a treat to have you guys here today. And I want to jump into another enormous story in all seriousness that both of you guys cited on your lists of the most kind of socially consequential sports stories for 2021. And that would be this big conversation that we found ourselves in really for the first time, I would say in a meaningful way ever in the history of modern sports, this conversation around mental health. You know, I, I don't really have any memory whatsoever of anything that happened at the Tokyo Summer Olympics other than Simone Biles. People remember, you know, she withdrew from the team final and then she withdrew from her individual all-around competitions at the Olympics, right? This came just a couple months as it happens. Uh, a huge deal came a couple months after Naomi Osaka, the tennis player, withdrew from the French Open. Both of these women, world-class athletes, you know, at the very top of their sports, both of them citing mental health. And I think in the process, elevating the issue and educating the public about the importance of mental health in general and how much bigger role it plays in athletes' lives, how that kind of bounces back to the broader public, all of those things in a pretty profound way. And so, you know, Simone Biles, named by Time Magazine, Athlete of the Year, which is great, probably would be better and mean a little bit more if Time Magazine hadn't just named Elon Musk Person of the Year. I mean, so look, good, very good judgment when it comes to Simone Biles. Uh, less good judgment when it comes to Elon Musk, but you know, right, let's just take the, the, the win for Simone. And in, in that context, let's take a listen to her at that Tokyo press conference in July when she talked about why she decided to drop out. We had a workout this morning. Um, it went okay. And then just that five and a half hour wait or something, I was just like shaking, could barely nap. I've just never felt like this going into a competition before. And I tried to go out here and have fun and warm up in the back went a little bit better. But then once I came out here, I was like, no, mental is not there. 
she went on the Today Show a couple months later, you know, talked about the decision she made and how she talked about it and said that she's still scared in some ways to do gymnastics a couple months later, greatest, you know, gymnast of her era, maybe ever. Naomi Osaka, after she did what she did and, and basically said, I'm not going to talk to the press and, and had various issues throughout the year where she again put mental health front and center. She had a press conference in Cincinnati in August where she addressed this question for the first time. I want to listen to that and then we'll talk about both of those women and the issue of mental health on the other side. I felt like it was something I needed to do for myself. Um, and more than anything, like I felt like I holed up in my house for a couple of weeks and I was a little bit embarrassed to go out because I didn't know if people were looking at me in a different way um, than they usually did before. But I think the biggest eye opener was going to the Olympics and having other athletes come up to me and say that they were really glad that I did what I did. So. Um, after all that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of what I did. Naomi Osaka, a huge figure in, in women's tennis, you know, said that she wouldn't talk to journalists at the French Open, then quit the French Open. She withdrew from Wimbledon. These are big moves. LZ, I find it all incredibly positive. Like, I think of them as, as doing an, an enormous service, not just to sports, but also to non-sports by elevating these issues. But I'm curious as to whether you think the same. And also, they were criticized by some quarters in real time who were like, you know, shut up and play, basically. You guys got to tough it out. That's what this is all about. You play through pain, whether it's mental or physical. Give me your assessment of that whole thing now that we sit here at the end of 2021. I find it fascinating that the conversations as they pertain to athletes' engagement, whether it's political, whether it's talking about empowerment, whether it's the mental health conversation, it's characterized as if it's something that the athletes themselves vacillate on. You know, it's like, now they want political, now they want to back off of it, now they want to talk about mental health, now they want to back off of it, now they just want to be sports, when really it's the media that's controlling the interest. <laughs> it's not the athletes. And I'll give you an example. When I lived in Chicago, I would spend time with Joakim Noah, who was the all-star center for them at the time. And Joe would go in the south side of Chicago and work with a group of community activists known as the Interrupters. And what they would do is they would go and interact with gang members and try to get them to find nonviolent ways to resolve their conflicts. Joe would go into the hood, six foot 11 of them. I'd be trailing with them, just kind of watching, documenting. I was At one point, I was thinking about writing a story about it, but really just observing. You know how many television cameras were around? You know how many CNN stories was about that? You know how many newspaper articles and, and zero, absolutely none. And so like this conversation about athletes and whether or not they're engaged now than they were last year, I think we should be asking ourselves, is the media more or less engaged in these conversations, not the athletes themselves? Because I just got a, a message from the head of the National Basketball, I believe that's Justice Coalition, and Steph Curry just put out a video days before he broke the record imploring people to vote. A brand new video. <laughs> so are you saying the athletes have lost interest in this? Or are we saying the media has lost interest in covering the athletes who have interest in this? I think it's more the latter. It's not the athletes themselves. Which brings me to Naomi Osaka as well as Simone Biles. Naomi Osaka has been talking about mental health for years. She's been talking about the media as it pertains to her mental health for years. She didn't just drop out of the sky and started talking about this issue. What changed? Well, the media's interest in her talking about it changed. Well, Will, she she seemed to drop out of the French Open and Wimbledon. I mean, those are kind of... She dropped out of yeah. the French Open because it was a condition 
from the organizers of the French Open. Right. It wasn't she unilaterally just decided, I'm not going to play. It was the French Open deciding they were going to fine her repeatedly for not doing a press conference, and thus she decided not to play in response right. to their response. Yeah. But the point being is that this isn't a new conversation for her. It is only new in terms of media covering it with the amount of passion that they're covering it. And then it got upped a lot. The ante was increased, obviously, when she decided to withdraw. But again, the decision to withdraw was in response to the French Open deciding to fine her for not participating in the interviews, not because she was making some sort of statement about mental health. But I'll take LC's criticisms of the media on this stuff all day long and twice on Sunday. And yet, you know, the reality is you take the two of them together. They are two incredibly accomplished, potent female athletes who decided to, when these various things took place that they were grappling with, decided to go very public with them and talk about them in a way that I think a lot of older athletes that we all know might have not been so forward about about saying this is what this is about. I mean, Simone Biles in particular, she talked about it in a very explicit way, both in real time and afterwards, kind of saying, you know, yeah, you know what? Like success in athletics isn't necessarily just how many tournaments you win or how many medals you win. There's this other thing. And the thing is super important. That's not the kind of talk that we used to hear from athletes that we grew up with. You didn't hear that conversation. And I don't think that's just because the media wasn't listening. I think it's because a lot of athletes, even in women's sports, decided that they needed for a variety of reasons to be macho in a way about this. The play through pain ethic, mental or physical in sports, has always been there. And it seems like those two are kind of leading a little bit of movement to say, fuck that. That's not what this should be about. I think that's what I feel about it. And again, I take the media criticism totally on board. Elsie's not wrong about that. But I do feel like it takes something away from them. They push this in a big way. And I think in a way that, I, again, I find really super healthy for the way we think about what competition is and what really winning is in your life. Yeah. And I think they're driving the conversation and that's different. One of the great things about this period in sports and is the player empowerment that LZ was talking about, the idea that like Simone Biles does not need to talk to Mike Lupica about her pain. She can just talk about it <laughs> and she can talk about it exactly how she wants to talk about it and, and explain it exactly the way she wants to. The thing that gets lost about Biles thing, by the way. Gymnastics is freaking scary. Yeah, <laughs> like that's incredibly right. like dangerous. Like she was talking specifically about twisties, so, like which is a thing in gymnastics that if you like if you're suffering from that, if you, you will break your leg. Yes. Particularly when there's someone like Biles who's so talented and is able to do stuff that no gymnast has been able to do before. If she messes up one thing or it isn't in the right space, she'll break her neck. <laughs> so like the idea that she would be upfront about it, and I think the fact that they got totally framed as like oh in the big moment that's framing through people that aren't athletes it was very telling that current active athletes no one was like oh well she choked in the big moment like they knew like they knew what this was they understood the physicality of it and i think it got put in the box of well in the past you just play through it or yeah people people tried to do the carry strong thing that was like the worst analogy that people tried to make was the carry strong <laughs> thing and also let's not forget everything else that's been going on in yeah. gymnastics by the way and how biles has been like out front and and was out front at the olympics one of the things she said going into the olympics was she felt she needed to represent not just her country, but the women athletes who had been done dirty by U.S. gymnastics and wanted that to be seen and wanted people to know that all of that stuff is on her anyway. So the fact that people tried to look at that or look at Osaka, though I think Biles specifically, and say, well, in the big moment, she just couldn't come through. It just belies a lack of understanding of how sports and athletes work. And I think now, because you can hear from the athletes more and they're not filtered through anything else, 
it's easier to understand that and maybe that was that was more difficult before and it was so asinine too because simone biles is one of the most decorated athletes to ever walk to earth, earth right so the, the idea that she's afraid of the big moment yeah. just yeah. was nonsensical <laughs> ridiculous totally you know we asked you guys because you guys know this stuff better than than i i feel like i'm a pretty big sports fan and i care about sports and society sports and culture sports and politics but you guys get paid to talk about it we said hey give us a handful of the most consequential sports moments or sports stories at the intersection of sports and culture and politics. Will said, you know, the pandemic and vaccine hesitance and increased awareness of mental health issues in sports. And then here comes LZ's number four, number four on his list. I was so glad to see it, but I don't know what he means by it, but we're going to talk about it. He wrote down King Richard. So, you know, King Richard's new movie out uh, about the Williams sisters and their father, Richard Williams starring Will Smith, which I have seen and really liked. You know, it's a traditional, old-fashioned kind of feel-good movie with some interesting takes on racial politics as respect to sports and respect to tennis in particular. I'm going to play a little clip from it, and I want to know, A, why you put it on the list, LZ, when we listen to this. After we listen to this clip from King Richard, I want you to talk about why you put it on the list. And then I also want you to contextualize it in a way that I don't think you're going to necessarily expect. I thought the big sports thing of the of the fall in movies was going to be Ava DuVernay's Kaepernick film for Netflix. And I got to say, like, I think King Richard has had a bigger impact and, and I've seen them both. And I think King Richard is a better movie. This is Richard Williams sitting down with some agents who are courting him to try to get in business with his daughter, Venus, who's on the rise as a junior tennis player. They have basically been telling him how incredible she is, how incredible what they've achieved. This is his response. You said uh, two times already. You said it's incredible. And uh, why is what we did so incredible? Oh, I just meant with your uh, resources and your experiences. Richard, I think all that Laird is saying is that you've done an incredible job with the girls. He overemphasizing how incredible it is. It's so incredible what we did. I see all these white kids around here. He ain't saying how incredible that is. Mr. Williams, I'm very sorry. I just meant with your background. Our background. Now, of of course, what you mean is our race. No, it's okay. It's okay. I get it. You know, little black girl. All white sport. That's why we pick tennis. Your little little uh, ghetto Cinderella. Your get, ghetto Rella. I mean, I gotta say, I love. It. I mean, Will Smith is great in the movie. He's and, so good. Uh, he's so good. So, so LZ, again, I ask you. There are two questions. Why is this on your list? What do you have to say about it? And then I want to talk about it in the context of the Kaepernick film, just as a uh, they came out roughly, you know, not that far apart, and it's an interesting contrast on a variety of levels. It's on my list for a few reasons. First and foremost, anytime the greatest athlete of their sport does something to talk about their narrative, it should be news, particularly among sports journalists. You know, a year ago, everyone was all abuzz about what? The Last Dance and getting to see a little bit more of what make Michael tick. This was an opportunity to see what made Venus and Serena tick. And while obviously in terms of Global impact, Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan. And, you know, it's hard to see an athlete come close to impacting the sports economically the way that Michael did. But there are other aspects to cultural impacts that Venus and Serena were able to accomplish that Michael didn't and that no other man could. This sport, tennis, is holding on in America because of these two black women. We stopped paying attention to the men after Andy Roddick became the last American man to win a major. We don't care about Rafa, Federer, and Djokovic because they aren't Americans. We only care about tennis. Those stadiums are filled at the U.S. Open in large part at night because of these two black women. 
And so when they have an opportunity to talk about what made them tick, that is news. It should be news. And yes, that's why one of the reasons why I included it on the list. But also number two, it offered an opportunity for us to reconsider the way that they were covered as they were becoming number one. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You know, I remember when Serena Williams was facing Sharapova at Wimbledon and the headline had a picture of an unflattering picture of Serena with the headline beauty and the beast. Mm -hmm. And we know who they thought the beauty was and we know who we thought the beast was. You know, they didn't go into so many other racist things that the media said about them. But one of the things that I thought was really important was that it explained why Richard Williams took the non-traditional route to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. If you remember when they were coming up, they were heavily criticized for having other interests, being interested in fashion, wanting to do movies. They are serious about the sport, blah, 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 blah. This was an opportunity to see why Richard Williams did what he did. And oh, by the way, all those people who had those negative things to say about them, they've come around to Richard's side. And the third thing I will say is that because we have a modern day Richard Williams in LeVar Ball who told us so, and now we have to sit up here and eat it because he was right. <laughs> this may give us a little bit more insight into LeVar Ball's mentality by looking at the way that Richard Williams went about handling his business with his children in this really difficult environment of professional sports. So I thought it was worth putting on the list. I think it's worth being on everyone's list because it touched on so many topics and it was about two of the most important figures in sports history. Totally. I, I a thousand percent agree. And I'm, I'm so glad you did it. And Will, I'm going to take the Kaepernick question to you, but I will add, Elsie, you will, this story will amaze you. When I was living in San Francisco in, in the late part of the 90s, early aughts, and I had season tickets to Giant Stadium, I lived right down the street from the park. Sweet. I wasn't really a Giants fan, but I had, I had tickets on about the 10th row behind third base. And I went to probably 35 games a year. And there was a day I was in there sitting with an African-American friend of mine who was a scout for the Oakland A's who had played with Barry Bonds at ASU. And it was maybe a 2000 season. I don't remember, but it was during Wimbledon. And this friend of mine was talking about how great Serena was and was talking in the way that sports fans do. He thought she was really sexy and he was talking about how hot she was. And the discussion that would never have annoyed anybody had we been talking about any white woman tennis player pissed off the people sitting in front of us so much the white people sitting in front of us so much that they called the ushers and tried to have us removed from our seats <laughs> because they kept turning around saying, stop talking about Serena Williams, talk about Serena's. And the whole tone of it was, she's disgusting. She's not sexy. Why are you talking about this? You're upsetting us. And it was like, the usher came down and was like, yeah, that guy, is, those are his season tickets. I'm not removing him from those seats. <laughs> but these, and these were people who didn't normally sit in these seats. And I thought, man, it was a really vivid illustration of how, again, I swear, if you've been talking about Maria Sharapova, and how sexy she was at a baseball game on a Saturday afternoon, no one would have said a word. And these right. people were very upset to hear this black guy talking about this woman who, you know, represented a, a standard of beauty that they did not agree with. So I say that story just because that was a very much a function of the media coverage where they were criticized in a million ways for how they looked, what they wore, yep. all that stuff. Even to see in the movie Venus with the beads in her hair when she plays that first professional tournament, that stuff she got criticized for as well. And the boldness of it, as you see it in the movie, it reminds you of how controversial it was. So, Will, I ask you, the movie is hagiographic. 
it's a very much a blessed product. I just told you I like the movie, so I like it. And I think that Will Smith is great in it, and I think it's useful in all the ways I'll just said. But it's also, the movie glorifies Richard Williams. It's not a tough take on them, right? And the reason I mention it is because the Kaepernick film is also just like that. They're two hagiographic biopics about the Williams family and then about Colin Kaepernick. He's like involved in it. He's working with Ava DuVernay. You see the promos for it. It's very clear exactly what's going on here, which is like he's using Ava DuVernay to tell his story in a very self-aggrandizing, self-glorifying way. I'm not saying it's unfair. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but they're both of a type, right? They're meant to be self-apple polishing films. One of them totally works and the other did not as much, I think, in my judgment. And I admire Colin Kaepernick. But talk about that and how... Well, what your thoughts are on it, because I saw you nodding aggressively when I made the point that one of these movies was very good and the other was not. First, I just as uh, from a movie aspect, I think Keith Richards is just better made and better constructed. I feel like the Kaepernick Project, well, first of all, one of the major problems with the Kaepernick Project is there's stuff he can't talk about. Right. <laughs> like there's stuff involving <laughs> the NFL that he can't talk about. And so like when you watch it, it's like you get all this backstory but then like you just have to trust that something happens eventually that we can't really get into. And Kaepernick is obviously a transformative figure in so many ways, 100%. but it, it it doesn't like the way that thing was made and the way it was kind of constructed. Like it's one thing for Venus and Serena to say, our dad is great. It's another thing for Kaepernick to say, I'm great. I don't think that like it's terrible, but I do think that there's something sweet. We talked about this in the podcast and LZ had a great point with this. There's something like emotional about Venus and Serena kind of making a love letter to their dad. Whereas Kaepernick's story still feels like, listen, Venus and Serena, or Serena in particular, like they're still playing, their careers are still going, but they're coming toward the end of their careers. And it, it feels almost like a valediction in a certain way. Like this is how this all happened. Look what we've done. There's still a sense that Kaepernick's story is not entirely done being told yet. And I think that's another problem of it. But I think the main issue is you kind of can't tell Kaepernick's whole story. And so all you can get is Here's how I got to where I am today, but where I am in today, I can't actually talk about as much. And I think it actually does hurt the film. I also think DuVernay is, as a filmmaker, I think she is a she's a good filmmaker, but I feel like I've seen the basic narrative of the Kaepernick story before right. told in a similar way. King Richard does something different and does it in a more interesting way. Well, and here's the other thing, Elsie, and I ask you whether you agree with this, and I, I haven't really even fully thought this through, but... It's unequivocally true that the Williams sisters are, one of them is the greatest player in the history of the women's, but maybe the greatest tennis player, forget about men and women, just is the greatest, most dominant player ever that played the game in Serena. And Venus at a period of time was the number one woman and is certainly going to be in anyone's list of the top four or five women who ever played tennis, right? Their accomplishments on the court have been so overwhelming that it's kind of beyond contest how great they are. And the fact that they have had this other social, cultural, political kind of impact, they're not really subjects now in the way that they once were. They're not anymore. They, they were so good. They accomplished so much on the court that they sort of transcended any real dispute in a very polarized country. Even people who hated them 10 or 20 years ago kind of admit now, yeah, they were they're the greatest. Kaepernick's not like that, right? I think all three of us with a Kaepernick transformative figure but not because of his on-field. I mean, he was denied his ability. We get to find out. <laughs> right. But the point is, the reality is his, how it's played out. Con Harkman is not going to ever be ranked as one of the great quarterbacks in, in American history. And so his transformativeness is purely in the political and social realm, which has left it 
in a place where like everything else in our politics and, and society is just he's just subject to the vagaries of people who love him. And then this whole other part of the country who just still hates him. And I think that's part of another kind of element of this. Right. Right. You know, making a hagiography about him is not beyond our normal political polarization. It just gets caught up in that for a lot of people. You're a billion percent correct. And I was actually thinking about that as Will was talking was like yeah. part of the reason why you know, Kaepernick's story didn't register in the same way that Venus and Serena or The Last Dance or any of the Ali great documentaries we can go on and on is because Kaepernick wasn't like that in the NFL. He wasn't like Jordan to the NFL. He wasn't like Venus and Serena to the NFL. Right. He was talented. Yep. He got to a Super Bowl, but he wasn't at no point ever the best at his sport, at his position, in his prime. Yep. He was really good. And I think he was elevated for a lot of people who don't follow the sport because of what he did off the field. And sports fans, particularly NFL fans, they can appreciate everything that he's done while also knowing, yeah, but he wasn't like that. And it's that like that part of the conversation that I think is critical in terms of looking at the popularity and impact of these two projects on the screen. The other thing I would add would be that Venus and Serena weren't divisive. Right. Yes, right. They were just existing. Yes, yes, yes. Totally. People were divided around them. Yes, right. Kaepernick was divisive. He did things that forced people to choose a side. Right. Venus and Serena were just black. Yeah. And then people responded to their blackness. Uh, but, you know, I'll see, as you know, about a million times better than me. Um, it turns out that in America that just being black is one of those things that forces people to take sides in this country. Um, I mean, really, it doesn't. What it, what it really is, is it's, it's something that forces a lot of white people to act like they've been forced to take a side, which is profoundly depressing and truly deeply sad, uh, a sad state of affairs, a sad commentary on the country, a sad statement on almost every level, but um, not quite as sad, but sad nonetheless. Uh, we have run out of time with LZ and Will. And I mean this abruptly. I mean, these two guys, they work for me. And yet they just flipped off some buttons on their machines that cut me off completely. So I can't talk to them because they're like, we have to do something way more important. We have to talk to each other. So Will and LZ are running off to go record another episode of the brilliant new podcast, The Long Game with LZ and Leach. It is mind-blowingly fantastic. And we are proud to have them here and make it at the recount. If you're interested at all, even in the slightest, in how sports and culture and politics collide, and you want to hear two of the smartest and savviest and funniest sports commentators of all time chopping shit up every week, then please subscribe to it and then rate it and review it as soon as humanly possible. Just get there. New episodes out every Wednesday. Will and LZ, you may be gone, but you're not forgotten. And thanks again for being here with me for a little time together. You guys are simply the best. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to LZ Granderson and Will Leach for being with us. If you like this episode, Please, just like I asked you to subscribe to The Long Game, if you haven't subscribed to Hell and High Water yet, please do so and then share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray, 
She's our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender, still, we're wondering, hologram or post-producer? Or hologramic post-producer, one or the other. She's she's certainly doing all the work. Uh, and the guy who sits over her, presiding in kind of self-satisfied glory, given some turns of events in recent Chilean politics. Anyway, he's a man, a myth, a legend. His name is Christian Fidel Castro Rossell, our executive producer. 